Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, there's a lot going on in the markets at the moment. The US market is up and down, like a bit of a yo-yo, mostly down. So we'll talk to Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, to find out what's going on. Stephen Kukulis will give us the pulse of the economy, and Malcolm Farr will bring us up to date on politics and how Prime Minister Scott Morrison's going. And also, Christmas is approaching, so let's talk to David White, who is at Deloitte's in charge of their annual survey of retailers about how they see Christmas, which I think is worth talking about. And now for her take on the markets, here's Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct. Julia, things have got a bit bumpy on the markets at the moment. What's behind that? We have seen increased volatility, and I guess it stems really from the U.S. Um, markets are a little bit nervous about valuations, given that there are signs that earnings growth could be rolling over. And we've seen earnings growth so strong in the U.S. for S&P 500 companies. Six out of the last seven quarters have seen double-digit growth. In fact, the recent quarterly earnings season, we've seen growth of around about 25%. But the view is that this can't continue forever, especially as those tax cuts roll off and the market's getting increasingly worried about valuations in a softer growth environment. So we have seen, in particular, technology stocks hit. And the worries are that we have seen the peak in the cycle for growth for technology earnings, as well as for margins in that space. And in particular, Apple has been in the spotlight this week. It's interesting watching the U.S. indices perform. This week, we saw all three of the major U.S. indices, the S&P 500, the Nasdaq, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, all dipping into the red for the year. And, of course, the Australian market following suit. So after what's been a pretty terrible October for the Aussie share market with a fall of 6.1%, we're following that up in November with increased volatility once again. And we're tracking for a 3% fall for the month of November. It is interesting to talk about those indices because the world's biggest company, Apple, which you mentioned just now, is in all three of them, of course, and is having an impact on all three of those indices. And in fact, Apple, I was looking at it last night, it's it's down nearly 24% over the past couple of months. So it's kind of, uh, I suppose, in a technical sense, it's a bear market for Apple. It is a bear market for Apple, and the fears are that iPhone sales are slowing down. And I guess just overall, from an investing point of view, it does become more difficult to make money in a stock when you still see growth coming through for a company, but you see slower rates of growth. And the fear is that the growth rates for Apple from here have peaked, and it's going to be much harder to uh, grow their uh, earnings further from here. So. Um, I guess we're going to see a slowing down in terms of growth, and that's the fear of the market, and that's what started to be priced in. So it's been a pretty dramatic uh, reaction by Apple shares. As you mentioned, now in the last couple of months, we've seen a 24% decline. But just in November to date, we've seen a 19% decline in Apple shares, and with that being a major component, especially in the NASDAQ index, that's had a big impact not only on sentiment in the U.S., but our global population as well. Yeah. So I suppose you'd call, you know, Apple the global market leader. And if it's uh, down 20% in not very long, then uh, that's going to impact everyone, isn't it? Absolutely. And I guess from a more macro point of view, the US Federal Reserve is now considerably down that path of tightening, where it is now beginning to impact on the economy. And the theory is that that impact will continue on, especially with those trade tensions between the US and China. 
And next week's going to be a huge week because there are going to be talks between President Trump and President Xi. And at this stage, I guess the market's thinking that the best case scenario may be just a delay in moving those tariffs on Chinese goods into the U.S., from 10% to 25% at a later date than 1st of January, especially given the tensions that we saw uh, between um, China at that uh, and uh, the rest of the Asia-Pacific countries at that APEC conference on the weekend. So the fear of the market, I think, is twofold. One, that we are seeing growth rolling over in S&P 500 earnings, and also that we are seeing, as a consequence, global growth looking to roll over as well. Thanks very much, Julia. Thanks, Alan. Now to talk about the economy, here's Stephen Kukoulis. He's got his own blog called Market Economics, and he's also Chief Economist for Dun & Bradstreet. Well, Stephen, I was struck by a tweet that I saw the other day by you saying that wealth destruction in Australia over the past year is something to behold. And I think you're saying it's getting close to half a trillion dollars. So uh, how do you arrive at that sort of number? That's a, yeah. That is quite large. Two, two things are unfolding. The, the, the bulk of our wealth, that's us Australian households and consumers, is tied up in housing and in the stock market, either directly through uh, our share ownership or through our superannuation fund. And since the start of this year, we know that house prices nationwide, which of course is how we should look at it, are down around about 5.5% or thereabouts. And given that the housing valuation was about $7 trillion, at the start of the year, five and a half percent of uh, of seven trillion is about three hundred and fifty three seventy five billion dollars. Now, not all houses are held by the uh, household sector, which should make some of them are held by foreigners. So that's why it's an approximate number. And we know that the ASX, my goodness, it's it's had a uh, troubling uh, well last couple of months, but in uh, a, a pretty soggy year to be blunt. It's probably dropped in value from the start of the year, not the peak in August, but from the start of the year, by about $100 billion. So some of that, of course, is held by foreigners as well. So it's not all the household sector, but the well, the point of the uh, tweet and the some of the analysis I'm doing on that sort of topic is that we householders have lost an awful lot of money, uh, sorry, an awful lot of wealth, I should say, in the last uh, year or so. And I think that's going to have an impact on our sentiment and our spending. So, so what is the connection? Can you can you kind of describe to us the connection and how how close it is between uh, the wealth effect, what's called the wealth effect, and uh, things like employment and uh, GDP and so on? Yes, yes. There's a, a strong correlation. There's been lots of academic research globally that does look at the link between changes in household wealth and changes in the momentum of household spending. And while there's a little bit of a discussion about the uh, order of magnitude of the change in wealth uh, and its impact on spending, there's nonetheless a, a, an undeniable correlation. And uh, so when we're, when we're having higher wealth through either a stock market uh, rally or house prices you know, rising solidly, we tend to feel more comfortable. We tend to be reducing our savings because we don't need to save as much because all of a sudden our other assets are worth more. So our discretionary saving declines and spending goes up. Uh, we also tend to be able and willing to borrow more money, so our borrowings go up. And, of course, the opposite is true in uh, a period when we've got this decline in, in wealth. So a, a nice little example is if you look at, say, the uh, Sydney-Melbourne housing markets just uh, versus WA, Western Australia and Perth, for example, 
when Sydney and Melbourne were booming up until uh, the latter part of last year, consumer spending in Sydney and Melbourne was the strongest in the country. When Perth house prices are falling, WA consumer spending was the weakest in the country. So that was a mini example of that. So as we get towards the end of 2018 and this wealth decline, housing decline, stock market weakness prevails, uh, there seems to me to be a a pullback in what we consumers will be spending in the Christmas period and probably into the new year as well. That reduces some of the uh, uh, demand for workers and then you get just a, a slowing in the rate of economic growth. Yeah, I saw, a, I saw David Scott, Scott of Business Insider uh, tweet a graph the other day showing that employment tends to follow wealth after about six months. So it's quite a, quite a strong correlation. Yeah, it is. And um, Alex Joyner, who's the economist at I, IFM, uh, the people who look after a lot of infrastructure investments uh, for the superannuation funds and others. He's actually done a, a really nice chart um, as well, which does show it's a change in house prices plotted against real per capita growth in retail sales. Sounds a bit of a mouthful, but the correlation is, is, is very, very strong. So where does that leave you and your views about interest rates? Do you still think, do you feel more strongly, in fact, uh, that the next move in interest rates will be, will be down? I think I am, yes. I, I, I don't. I think that the RBA is still optimistic, and I hope they're right in a sense. I hope that, that we do get GDP growth locked above 3%. We get the unemployment rate well below 5% into the new year because that will lead to a wage and inflation pickup. So I hope they're right. But I'm really concerned that this wealth effect is something that they're – I'll say they're glossing over. You know, they they welcome the fall in house prices, and, and you know, to give them their uh, their due, they 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 did want housing to cool off, and so in a sense, they're not yet terribly worried. But I think there's it might be a bit of a case of careful what you wish for, because there seems to be a further tightening in credit, which perhaps they didn't factor into their forecasts. That's come from the Banking Royal Commission, the change in credit provision from the from the banks and other financial institutions that they are tightening in credit because the last thing they want to do now is be having a dodgy loan uh, exposed sometime next year. So there's undeniably a tightening in credit, which I think will have an impact. So the RBA to me, well, they're certainly on hold, but I still think it's a better than even bet that the next move is down and not up and that this time next year we'll be looking at a cash rate, you know, perhaps at 1%. You're certainly at odds with the Governor of the Reserve Bank. His, his speech the other night reinforced the idea that the next move will be up. He, he did, yes, and he's, and he's upbeat. He's, he's got a view that the um, momentum in things like infrastructure spending is very much entrenched, that he's got a view that uh, we consumers will continue to spend despite this wealth effect. I think that's that's the point of dif- disagree uh, disagreeance between my work and the RBAs and the RBA governor, that it's the household sector, because I think business investment is looking okay. I think infrastructure is still looking strong. Our export performance looking great. But it's this household sector and housing more generally. And remembering that uh, household consumption is you know, over half of GDP. It's about 55-odd percent of GDP. So when it starts to slow down, you need the other sectors to be doing a lot of um, heavy lifting to get that GDP number sustained above 3% in terms of uh, annual growth. So it'll be it'll be household sector, house prices, consumer sentiment readings, retail sales readings, they're the things I'm looking at to see whether there's any crack to the downside on the economy or whether the RBA is in fact right and that we we consumers are resilient into the new year. Good on you, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Alan.
Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Now, here's Malcolm Farr, the national political editor for news.com.au. Malcolm, interesting stuff going on with Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. What is it? Roseville wants to sack Malcolm Turnbull from the party and they're actually ganging up on Tony Abbott and his electorate. So what what do you make of all that? Well, it's it's sort of as if uh, some senior Liberals have signed a suicide pact on the eve of the uh, federal election, which is you know anywhere from uh, you know, about six months away. Can you imagine what punters are going to think? That they're so busy pursuing each other, uh, you can't imagine that voters would think they've got much time left for them. Now, this business about wanting to uh, uh, eject Malcolm Turnbull from the Liberal Party because he liked something on Instagram is just absurd. it, It doesn't bear scrutiny. It's the sort of thing you see in, in uh, satirical novels, and, and not particularly good satirical novels at that. Uh, now, the pursuit of Tony Abbott at least has a grassroots uh, element to it. There are people in Warringah who are uh, keen to uh, see, him, uh, see him leave the parliament at the next election. But the most significant point is there's no one there to replace him. He's got Liberal pre-selection, so another Liberal can't do it. And there is no decent, substantial independent yet to put up their hand to uh, run against him. So that's that's all uh, you know, uh, Sandy land stuff as well. <laughs> the Liberal Party seems condemned to be talking about itself and not about the things that voters want, despite Scott Morrison's uh, uh, quite robust and, uh, and uh, hyperactive attempt to switch that conversation. Well, speaking about that, what he tried to switch it to this week is population, and he appears now to be against it. So, firstly, is it a big shift for them, and and will it uh, actually make any difference? Well, something seems to have happened on the way from being treasurer to being prime minister to affect Scott Morrison's view of immigration. Uh, He previously was uh, a big fan of of, uh, a large intake uh, as he put it, it was good for the economy because the people coming in uh, got jobs, paid taxes, started businesses. Also, you've got to remember that they, uh, uh, they're a lot younger than uh, the rest of the population. They kept, kept the average population of Australia down. And so they, they served all sorts of good purposes. But, uh, uh, you know, suddenly, as I say, on that road uh, between... Um, uh, between the, the Treasurer's office and the Prime Minister's office, something changed. And I would suggest, uh, and I'm sure you wouldn't say this because you're not as cynical as me, but I would suggest it was uh, an indication that voters wanted population and immigration to be uh, a, uh, a, a topic because they, uh, blame, uh, they blame migrants, essentially, for traffic congestion uh, and, and crammed cities even though you've got to say that the blame has to go with uh, serial state governments and federal governments who uh, neglected uh, the infrastructure needed for that sort of thing. So, uh, uh, look, Scott Morrison has even gone to the extent of saying Australia will vote against a United Nations compact on, uh, on migration, uh, a compact which doesn't oblige uh, the people uh, agreeing to it to do anything, uh, doesn't uh, commit them to doing anything, doesn't intrude on sovereign rights of, of uh, limiting who comes here and who doesn't. 
but I guess it's just the uh, the, the the spectacle of uh, agreeing to you know those nasty people, the United Nations, who just want to flood the world with migrants and refugees. Um, that was, would be too much for this government to carry in the lead up to the election. So more broadly, Malcolm, how do you think he's going, Morrison? I mean, I haven't spoken to you for a few weeks. What do you think? I think he's doing a lot better than a lot of pundits would indicate. Certainly he's tireless. And uh, even if you want to poke fun at that Queensland bus that actually was a plane ride that he took, uh, even if you want to poke fun at him uh, uh, trying to be uh, Harry on the hill at a football match with a pie in one hand and a can in the other, uh, taking all that into account, I think he's getting over to punters in a way that might eventually worry uh, uh, Labor. Uh, I, I don't downplay this guy in terms of, of energy and determination. He's much like Bill Shorten. Uh, Shorten should not be underestimated in terms of his application to the job and his ability to uh, keep running right till the end. I think we've got two... Uh, uh, we've got two high-energy leaders clashing at the next election, both of whom will be claiming to be the voice of the ordinary folk, uh, and it's going to be an interesting policy clash, uh, if anything, but most certainly uh, a clash of personalities, which will be fascinating to watch. Good on you, Malcolm. Thank you. Pleasure, sir. Bye. Now, here's David White, the national leader of retail, wholesale and distribution at Deloitte, to talk about their annual Christmas survey of retailers. Well, David, we're talking about your uh, annual Christmas retailers survey. Tell us about the survey to begin with. How many people do you talk to and what do you ask them? So we talked to around about 50 senior executives across Australia um, from retail companies that are either listed, uh, private, multinational, so quite a selection of them. Uh, and the questions we asked them are focused, um, I guess, twofold. One is around what are they doing around Christmas in terms of sales, uh, strategies, margins, discounting, key, key strategic priorities. Uh, and then we turn our attention to what they're looking to do in 2019. So again, where are they going to grow? What are the focus areas? What are the key challenges? Um, and, and where do they see uh, the opportunities for, for next year. So they're kind of the two areas that we look at. Before we get into the detail, what was your overall impression of what you heard from them? So over, overall, um, Australian retailers are going into this Christmas really quite optimistic, um, which on one hand is a little bit surprising given some of the challenges we've seen in the market. You know, we've had some uh, you know, some retailers, unfortunately, uh, go into bankruptcy, um, continue, continue to see lots of increase in competition. So, so to see such a positive response from retailers is a little bit surprising. And 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 compare that to last year, where retailers were quite sort of neutral or pessimistic. It's it's quite a shift. Um, but when you stand back and look at the market itself, the market in Australia is continuing to grow. Um, we are seeing consumers. Um, putting their hands in the pockets and spending money. Um, and so the pie, the, the size of the pie is growing. It's just becoming that much harder and that much more competitive to, to gain that market share. Yes, yeah, so the optimism that you talk about shows up in the what sort of increase you're expecting this year in sales, yeah. right? And 5% increase or more is 41%, and usually it's around about the 20%, so 18%, 24%. 
in the previous years. So 41% is a bit of a, it's quite a surprising increase, I must say, and I was surprised by that. It is. So, yeah, so in total, eight out of 10 retailers expecting to grow compared to last year. And yeah, you're right, um, 41% expecting a 5% growth. And, and then the other story around that is also just around margins. So we've seen, um, you know, huge pressure on margins with cost increases, fuel prices, uh, competition, me- meaning it's really hard to pass on those price increases to consumers. But we also saw, you know, some bullishness around margins. So just over half expecting to have some form of margin increase over Christmas. Um, so that's that's really quite telling. Um, the, 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 the trade-off always over Christmas is, discounting and just how much and when retailers are going to need to discount to to be able to bring the consumer um, into their store or shopping online and two-thirds of retailers are planning to discount again this year so that's still quite a high number but the retailers are telling us they're going to try and put that off till boxing day or beyond so try and hold out in the early couple of weeks in christmas um, now historically um, that's always been the case Sellers really don't like going early on accounting, but the flip side is companies are, uh, you know, repeatedly over the last few years looking to delay their Christmas purchases. So I think over the next two weeks, it'd be really interesting to see whether retailers are able to sort of hold their nerve and and, and re- sort of keep their keep away from the discounting trick, or whether they'll need to go and and, and really trigger that to get customers in. Let's talk about online. Most of them tend to uh, expect a 10 to 30% increase in online sales this Christmas, and that has been increasing every year. So uh, 59% expecting 10 to 30%, which is up. But they mm. also are expecting increased competition from foreign online competitors, which basically means Amazon, I guess, or at least around about 28% expect more competition from uh, on international online competitors. So uh, how, how do you kind of marry those two things? Oh, look, I think what we've seen is um, with Amazon coming into Australia, what we've seen is retailers really double down on their investment on their digital strategies. Previously, uh, it was a nice to have. Now it's become a, a really important part of how retailers go to market. So, um, so retailers have invested there and they're expecting to reap the rewards of that over Christmas and through to 2019 is what they're telling us. Um, Amazon... Um, also, coming through the survey, um, 90% of retailers say that Amazon hasn't even had an impact on their business so far, and 83% of them uh, think that Amazon won't affect them over Christmas. So it's really quite, um, really quite staggering numbers in, in terms of the number of retailers that haven't been impacted by Amazon. Um, but I think the times are changing, and um, you know it's been a slow start for Amazon, but we do expect that to, to ramp up and. This Christmas won't be won't be the decider in terms of whether or not they've been successful, but but I think we're going to get a really good indicator of just how far they've come over the last twelve months, and and uh, and I think we're going to they, they, and Amazon themselves are really helping to drive Australian consumers to spend more online. Yeah, that, that impact of Amazon that you've picked up is remarkable at this point. Ninety percent saying no impact. 3% saying positive impact. So obviously a few of them are reckon they're getting caught up in uh, Amazon's wind. Uh, negative impact, 7%. So really not much not much at all at this point. Yeah, look, so, some retailers are benefiting because they're actually selling through Amazon. So it's another channel to market, which is good. I think the smaller uh, retailers have benefited particularly from that area. 
uh, and those that sell through wholesale, um, it's given them an, another option. Um, I think it's symptomatic of what we've seen so far with the Amazon market entry. It's been a little bit slow and steady, um, but actually that's not too much of a surprise. That's kind of, you know, you, you, we're talking about a, a potentially a $10 billion business in Australia. That's not going to set up overnight. So um, obviously they launched Amazon Prime this this uh, this year. Um, that's the key for Amazon to, to build their business. That's how they've been successful in uh, the US, the UK. Um, we're starting to see a lot of traction now in India. So that's really the key to watch out for is, is people subscribing to Amazon Prime and those services being delivered, um, you know, ramping up and improving and being comparable to the UK and the US. Do, do you think those survey results indicate a degree of complacency among Australian retailers? I think there is a little bit of complacency there, to be honest. Um, uh, I think whilst the Amazon haven't had a huge impact here, the, they I think they really will have a big impact in Australia. So uh, there's a little bit of complacency coming through. I, I'm pretty confident um, over the next 12 or 18 months we're going to see a significant ramp up in consumers shifting to Amazon. Um, as they get their infrastructure in place, they get the pricing right, they get the product selection. Uh, I think I think uh, Australian consumers will respond well to it, and we're starting to see uh, Australia and Australian consumers shift um, their spending a lot more to online. Um, so, so I, I, I do fear that there's a little bit of complacency there um, uh, creeping into the retail market. Great to talk to you, David. Thanks a lot. No worries. You're welcome. Michael Hutchins of InXS died on this day 21 years ago, aged just 37. And what a pity that was. But it gives us an opportunity to listen to Never Tear Us Apart, his masterpiece, in my opinion. He wrote the lyrics. Andrew Farris wrote the music. And, um, and of course, uh, Kirk Pangilly's fantastic saxophone solo caps it off. But what a great song this is. That's it from me. Have a great week.